you know, thesis verse that we're going to use. But I do want to ask, hopefully you have your Bibles. And, uh, thank you. Test one, two. Hopefully you'll have your Bibles, and I want you to uh, turn with me to the book of, of Exodus. And I'm just blown away. I mentioned, I think it was last Sunday, I believe it was. I mentioned that when you look at the, at the entirety of Scripture, it, it only seems that there's about 40 verses that are given to describing how God created all that there is. Now, I'm just going to kind of, not a warning, but just so you know, I'm not going to scream and holler tonight. I want to do teaching, and I want to, uh, to, to let that teaching go forth. So just give me some time to kind of get things started and kick it off. But I believe that if we can learn what the Word of God says, we can apply what the Word of God says. And so uh, 40 verses to describe the creation of the universe. Uh, every once in a while my mind just goes. And, and I, I think I was driving the other day and I got to thinking about just the vastness of space. That somewhere in the mid-70s, NASA launched a, a, a satellite spacecraft, if you will, and defying all odds, they, they were hoping it would get to Mars, but defying all odds, it's now past our solar system and headed toward that outer asteroid belt that's past Pluto. And it just, it just blows my mind that since the 70s, this little spaceship has been flying the fastest of any man-made object in the world. I mean, it is scooting. And still, we are not even through our own little galaxy. The vastness of space. And, and to think that when you try to describe how in the world do you create a world, an earth? How do you create the stars? And how do you create the planets and the atmospheres? And we only have 40 verses to give to all of that. But yet, there are some 40 verses that are given in the instructions for building the tabernacle. 40 verses. Two chapters for creation. Five books of the Bible given to the, the, the tabernacle and the redemption. The tabernacle in its, its design, it's much like the ark, the Noah's ark. It was conceived, it was given by God. God handed the blueprints to Moses and said, do this exactly. Don't, don't say, you know what, I think I can cut a corner here or there. I think I can save a two by four here. I, I, I think maybe if we do it this way, it'll be easier. But instead, he said, no, I want you to do it absolutely in the details that I have given. The ark or, or the, uh, the tabernacle that we talk about, and, and I'm going to describe it here in a moment. One of the things that you can, you can find very quickly is that that tabernacle, it was designed to be portable. They, they, when you begin to look, you're going to find that many of the items in the tabernacle, they were constructed with rings along the side that you would put a, a pole in and they could pick them up. And we're talking heavy things, things made of bronze, things made of gold. But they were constructed so that the priest could carry them. And they were not designed to be carried on a cart or a buggy. But instead it was designed to be carried on the shoulders of the priest, the, Levit, the Levites, and it was designed that wherever God wanted to take them, that's where the tabernacle went. We, we, we talk about the, 
the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that led the children out of Egypt. But you have to understand that was with them in present for quite a long time, all the way to, to uh, uh, Canaan's land. But when, when God wanted to get them to leave, he would just start moving that pillar of fire or that pillar of smoke. And they knew we better pack it up and we better go. And then wherever God wanted them to be, that pillar of fire or that pillar of smoke would, would, would hang still and they would build that, uh, that tabernacle. I, I don't want to be boring, but I do want you to see all of the, how, how well and how fit together the tabernacle was. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter uh, 25. Now I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'm going to skip around, but at least you'll kind of know where I'm at and hopefully you can you can hear me talk about it as you read it in your Bible and you can see it in your Bible and you can see what's happening. In verse 10 of, of Exodus chapter 25, he said, first I want you to make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. That's the best that, that, that we can figure out. So that, that Ark of the Covenant was going to be 45 inches or three foot and, and, and three quarters foot uh, long. And, and its, its breadth is going to be a cubit and a half or 27 inches uh, is, is going to be its height. And you're going to overlay it with pure gold inside and outside make a molding of gold around it cast four rings of gold and put it on the four uh, 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 feet and two rings on one side two rings on the other make poles of acacia wood overlay them with gold put the poles into the rings and that's how you'll carry it that was the ark of the covenant it was a, a chest if you will but then what you may not realize if you don't read your bible closely is that those two cherubims on top were not part of the ark of the covenant the bible says then you're going to make a mercy seat of pure gold Again, it's going to be 45 inches long, and it's going to be a, a, a cubit and a half or 27 inches in, in width. You're going to make two cherubs of gold of hammered work. You'll make them on either side of the mercy seat, and you will set the mercy seat on top of the ark. And so the ark of the covenant, the way we see it, you know, when you got those two angels with their wings outstretched over, it was really two pieces. It was a chest. That was the ark. And then this, this covering, not really a lid, it went on top of the lid, but it was there and, and those cherubims were there. He said you need to make a table for the bread, make it of acacia wood. It's going to be uh, 27 inches in length, it's going to be 18 inches in breadth, it's going to, uh, 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 you're over, or 36 inches high, or 30 inches long, it's going to be 27 inches tall. And you're going to overlay it with pure gold. Make a molding of gold around it. Make a rim around it. And you're going to carry it everywhere you go. The golden lampstand, it was made of hammered gold. Its base, its stem, its cups, they were uh, looked like almond flowers, if you will. And it was said that it was made of some 75 pounds of pure gold that, that was hammered out this branching candle stand. The tabernacle itself, that tent, it had ten curtains of fine twine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and woven into it were cherubims skillfully worked into it. The length of each curtain was 27 cubits, that's 42 feet, and the width of each of those ten curtains were six foot. So you had a curtain that was 42 feet long and six feet wide, and there were ten of those. There were loops on each of those curtains, loops that you took bronze uh, or brass rings and you would, you would tie them together, clasps of, of gold, uh, I, I meant clasps of gold, not, not bronze, clasps of gold that would couple the curtains one 
to another. And then they took curtains of goat's hair to put a tent over those uh, uh, curtains. And there was 11 curtains you're going to make, 30 cubits long, 45 foot long, 6 foot wide. And they would take those curtains and they would lay them over the tent so that it would go up the side and over the top pole and down. And then they had a curtain of, of, of goat's hair that they put on top of that. And then on top of that were tanned ram skins and on the very top a covering of goat skins. Somewhere in the Bible that you have it may use the word badger skins. There's been a lot of, of discussion about what the badger skins were. When we think of a badger, we think of a pretty small animal, and it'd take a whole lot of those skins to, to cover that. Some have said that, that the word, the Hebrew word for the badger skins is really, could be better translated as a seal skin, and then they take it a little bit further because I don't think a seal's being in, in, in that area, but they, how, how many of you know what a manatee is? Well, a manatee has a cousin that exists on the, on the other side of the world called, I think I'm pronouncing it wrong, right, a dudong. And those are very common in Egypt and in the Nile and very common in that area, or they were. And so some said that they, they took those and, and it was a, a very hard, hard skin. In fact, it was the same skin that they made their, the bottoms of their shoes with. And they would take that. It was, it was designed so that the weather couldn't penetrate it, but on the inside it was absolutely gorgeous and then it talks about uh, making an altar of acacia wood seven and a half feet long four and a half feet uh, wide and or seven and a half feet broad and four and a half feet tall it was square and you you they layered it with bronze they made all of the shovels and the hooks and the forks and the fire pans and the basins and the grates all out of bronze and it was designed to slide the poles in pick it up and carry it out they made a court a fence that went all the way around this they made a curtain that was a hundred and fifty feet long it was skillfully woven and it was fine twine linen they would take that 150 foot, it was two curtains, but really when they got done stretching it across the poles and making a, a, a fence, if you will, it was 100 feet long and 50 feet wide. One side had a gate that was made of, of, of hangings and curtains as well. They made an oil for the lamp. They made the priest's garments. They made the, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. They, they made the... the the, the anointing oil that made the incense. And when you look in verse th or chapter 30, verse 22, it is absolutely amazing how, uh, how detailed it was when you're going to make this incense and this oil. And then it made the statement, you are never to use this recipe for anything else but the Lord. It smells good, so don't use it for your own perfume. Because your worship is never designed for you. Your worship is designed for the Lord. The worship that you give the Lord should not be given to anyone else. The Bible says, I'm a jealous God. Beside me there is no other. I will not tolerate worship with anybody else. And so, if, if you can use, I don't, know, I don't know if they found a picture. I, I was looking and I forgot to get them one. I don't know if they have, do you have the picture of, of the, 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 uh, the tabernacle, if you will? But in that tabernacle, you had it surrounded. Uh, there you go. You, and I, I know you can't see it as, as well as you'd like to. 
but, but it was surrounded by that fence. And when they would come in, the first thing, when you entered into the entrance curtains, the first thing you came to was the brazen altar. And then from there, you hit the brazen laver, a place of washing. Then you entered actually into the tabernacle, the tent. And there you would find on one side the table of showbread. Right in the middle in front of the curtain, the, the, the veil that separated the, the holy place from the holiest of holies. You would have an altar of incense. And then on the other side you would have the golden candlestick. And then those that were privileged to walk through the veil, behind the veil would be the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. I don't have time to expound all of this for it's not the, 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 my, my sermon today. But if you could really look at it, and I don't know if they found a picture or not, I'm going to have it later, but really, if you look at it, it forms a cross. The, the, the uh, bronze altar, the bronze laver, and then the cross beams, the table of showbread, the, the altar of incense and the golden candlestick and there above the cross member would be the holiest of holies. And, and, and if you read the Hebrews, and we did a study on Hebrews, if you read Hebrews you find that this was not just something that God said, hey, do for a little bit, but he said this pattern of the tabernacle is going to stretch and you begin to see how Jesus fulfills each of those roles of the tabernacle. That the old covenant passes away because there is something better. Brother Jaco so ably preached that it took uh, the, uh, a thousand years or more of a goat that would take on the sin of, of Israel. And they could take the sin and they could handle the sin, but they could not defeat sin. But then along came a spotless lamb. Jesus is greater than anything else. I don't have time to talk about it in depth, but I would tell you that, that that sacrifice that they would make on that brazen altar, Jesus performed the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. I would tell you that that, that, that laver, that, that bronze or brazen laver, that the blood of Jesus washes you more clean than anything they would find back then. I could walk you into it and say that table of showbread that Jesus proclaimed many times, I am the bread of life. I could take you to that, that golden candlestick where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I could take you to that altar of incense where he would say, I'm the only one that deserves that worship. And I could take you behind the veil to that Ark of the Covenant where they said the presence of God dwelled. And I would tell you that his presence is here now. Jesus fulfilled the tabernacle but the key is this just as you have heard me say that, that the gospel is the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the method of our salvation found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 is repentance, water baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost and we know that if you that, that you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is upon you. So we know that that salvation brings us power. And so what it is, is that the receptacle, if you will, the, 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 the receptacle where the electricity is, where the power is, that's the gospel. 
But, but Acts 2.38 is that three-pronged plug that plugs into the gospel. And because Jesus died, we must have a spiritual death through our repentance. Because Jesus was buried, we must be buried with him in the waters of baptism. And as Jesus was raised from the dead three days later, so must you and I be raised in the newness of life. We see how those connect. But the tabernacle teaches us that there is ways. See, I, I'm as I have studied and I have I have really been just fascinated by how all of Exodus plays out. You, you've heard me preach that really this was not the the plan, if you will. The Lord had a better plan for the children of Israel. It was never designed for the presence of God to be hidden away behind a veil. But there's this time when God called them all. He said, I want you to come up to my holy mountain. Take three days. Take three days and consecrate yourself. And then I want you to all come up to the holy mountain and let me talk to you. But when God began to speak, the children of Israel got scared. And if you read in the book of Exodus, around Exodus chapter 18, 19, and 20, you will find that they made this statement. We don't want to hear from God directly anymore. Moses, you go up, you hear from God, and then you come tell us what we're supposed to do. And because of that, I'm, I'm firmly convinced God said, you're not ready for what I want to do. God has never, ever, ever wanted there to be somebody that you have to go through to get to his presence. God never intended that there have to be a bunch of hoops you got to jump through for you to get into his presence. He desires that relationship with you and I. He desires that we can come boldly into the throne of God. We, he desires that we can cast our cares on him. But the tabernacle says this. You have to do this if you want to get in the presence of God. Follow these steps. You're going to walk in. There's an altar. There's a laver. There's a table. There's an altar of incense. There's a golden candlestick. And there's an Ark of the Covenant. Have you, you ever noticed, some of you, you're not like this. Some of you are so holy it makes me sick. I wish I could be like you when I grow up. But for those of you that don't walk on water, have you ever noticed how hard it is to pray? Yeah. They required us at Gateway to go through to, to do early morning prayer, and they'd, you'd get in trouble if you didn't wake up and go pray in the tabernacle. I perfected laying before the Lord. Being transparent. Be 6.30, 7 o'clock, I'm stumbling down there, you know, and I'd, I'd lay down, and, and, and here's the secret. If ever about 30 seconds or even three minutes, you go, oh, they think you're praying. <laughs> y'all are laughing, but I've been in prayer meetings at this church, and y'all have perfected that same thing. <laughs> so don't laugh at me. But, but so, so we understand it's hard to pray. That's why the disciples, they, they, said, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They did not say, I want you to notice this, this is so powerful. They didn't say, teach us how to pray. We look at, we look at, at uh, uh, 
the Lord's Prayer as how to pray. Pray this way. But that was not the question they asked. They said, teach us to pray. Just to do something. And the Lord's Prayer is a great prayer. There's a phenomenal way you can pray through the Lord's Prayer. But as I begin to study this, and again, it's not new to me. It's not like I found it all by myself. I, I read other people's notes, and I begin to get my Bible, and I begin to write notes into it. I'm convinced that if we could ever learn to pray through the tabernacle, you would find that your prayers will consistently get you into the presence of God rather than you just taking time and saying the same old thing and leaving unchanged. Now, I, I, I'm gonna, over the next few weeks, I'm going to take you just through the furniture of the tabernacle. The bronze uh, altar, the bronze laver, the show, table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden candlestick, uh, even some pillars that we'll talk about that were in there, and then the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. But, but I would tell you that first you've got to get into it. That, that, that uh, uh, curtain if you will, not the veil, but there was a curtain, a gate that you had to walk through. And that's why the Bible says we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and we enter into his courts with praise. And I, I believe that, that probably most all of us don't have a problem with that one. We are okay with getting into the court, but where do we go from there? And that first place you've got to hit is that altar, that brazen altar brazen altar when I, when I begin to read this when I begin to study this it, it just kind of hit me because it, it convicts even me because I, I begin to realize one of the greatest hindrances to our prayers being getting us into the presence of God is because far too many times we bypass the altar and I'm telling you, part one of this message was preached so ably by Brother Jeff Jaco. And, and I'm not going to rehash it. I'm going to mention a few things that he said that just stuck out to me. But you need to hear that first message because he talked about the altar. You can't get into the presence of God if you bypass the altar. So let's look at the altar. I want to invite you, and we're going to read it. I'm, I'm, I kind of mentioned it, but let's read it a little bit better. Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, verse 1, and you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits, that's seven and a half feet uh, long, and five cubits broad, that's seven and a half feet uh, wide, so it's a square. And the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, that's four and a half feet. And you shall make horns on it, on its four corners. The horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. Make pots for it to receive the ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. And make all of its utensils of bronze. And you shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on that net you shall make four bronze rings. At its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. Make poles for the altar, all poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on either sides of the altar when it's carried. And make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. If you go back in the Word of God, you find that, that the Ark of the Covenant is exactly 
half the size of the altar. And one commentator made the statement, said, honestly, all of the, the, the pieces of, of, that were inside the tabernacle could have been placed in the altar. The hollowness of that altar could have fit all of the other stuff, the Ark of the Covenant, it could have fit within the confines of that altar. One, one man made the statement, and it, it, it stuck out to me. It said, could it be that the size of your altar will determine the size of your ark, which represents God's presence? Could it be the reason so many times we pray we don't, we don't seem to get into God's presence is because we never built the altar? make a little bitty altar you get an even smaller bit of God's presence does that make sense I don't think see nothing that the Lord does is by accident when he designed it he thought about this and he specifically said I want the altar to be bigger than what you think the ark of the covenant and and, because that's what everybody wants everybody wants the ark of the covenant Philistines stole it they wanted the ark of the covenant they wanted the presence of God But they couldn't handle it because they didn't have an altar. And that bronze altar is what means the world to you and I. That altar, if you get into Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 9, you find that they got ready and they finally had built the tabernacle. And In fact, if you read the the end of of, of Exodus, you find that it, 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 first off, you have God telling you how to build it. Very detailed, we just read it. And then if you keep reading, you find that Moses built it and and it it, it repeats the same thing. Because it wants you to make sure you build it the way God said to build it. And so in in, in Leviticus chapter 9... Uh, they have built the they built the ark. They built the tabernacle. They put everything in it. They've consecrated the priests. They put on the linen ephods. They've walked out and they they get the sacrifices ready. They did the stuff they had to do outside the tabernacle. There were some sacrifices they had to make and some blood and some washing. Now they're in there. And the Bible says that the fire fell and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. And if you'll really study it out, you'll find that from that moment forth, that fire could always be traced back to the fire that fell. When they, when, when they got ready to, to, to pick it up, they left the fire in there. They left it burning. They had to, they had to keep that embers alive what, however long they had to travel. They had to keep that fire so that when they put the altar down at the next spot and they put a little tinder on it and they put some wood on it and they begin to blow on it, they were igniting or allowing the fire that came at the beginning to fan up and flame again. You weren't supposed to grab a lighter. You weren't supposed to go rub two stones together. You were not supposed to get a match and light it because that altar, there's only one fire that we need and that's the fire of the Holy Ghost. That's the fire that comes through the presence of God. In fact, if you begin to look, God don't like strange fire. He killed some, some, some of Aaron's sons because they offered a strange fire. That altar was there. Fire is amazing. Heat is amazing. You can take a, I, I've done a little blacksmithing. I, I love to, to make noise. And when you bang on metal on an anvil, it makes a whole lot of noise. And that's music to my ears. And you can take that 
that iron bar or that iron rod and you can stick it in a coal furnace and you can let that fire begin to work on it and you can take something that's unbendable, that's unmovable and give it a little bit of time in the fire and when you pull it out, it moves like butter. The reason being is because molecules have an inherent stickiness. Molecules don't like to be separated from one another and so when you get that iron bar, the molecules that make up that iron bar, they don't like to move. They're stubborn. But when you apply the heat to that bar, that fire begins to excite those molecules and they begin to move and they begin to jump around. And while I'm giving you Buford's version, it actually is very scientifically or very scientific in, in its physics. And, and the heat begins to excite those molecules and they begin to move and they begin to shake and, and they begin to be willing to, to, they're still connected, but they're willing to move now. And that's why you can reshape uh, iron that has been in the fire. But if you leave that iron in the fire long enough, those molecules will get so excited that they will, will, will begin to, to glow and, and, and they'll begin to move and, and, and light is given off. That's why iron gets red and yellow and orange as you heat it up. But pretty soon, if you leave it in the fire long enough, those molecules will move so rapidly that they won't care about being connected and they'll begin to explode away from each other and they will actually turn into a gas that can move anywhere it wants to move. In our lives, we become very unmovable. Our spirits begin to be so rebellious and stiff-necked and stubborn and it takes the fire of a Holy Ghost altar that begins to move upon us and soften those hardened parts and soften those places that don't want to move and soften those attitudes that don't want to change and allow us to be molded and shaped under the hand of a master. That altar is so important. Would you turn with me to a few uh, 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 chapters? Would you turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians? And I want to I show you 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What I want to do today is show you how some of these verses that we, we hold on their own, watch how well they fit within the confines of praying the tabernacle. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. I believe your King James Version will say something I bring my body into subjection. This is more than just discipline, this is more than just, you know, saying I'm not going to drink a soda today. But it is, a, it is going to an altar and laying yourself on an altar and say, God, not my will, but thine be done. Let's take another journey. Let's look at another verse. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. What does the Bible say? You ought to be able to quote it. But I present my body a living sacrifice. The only way I know a sacrifice can be given is if it's placed own an altar. Why don't you look at Romans chapter 6 in verse 6 with me. It says this, Romans 6, 6. And we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to another, be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
There's a death that has to take place. First Peter, uh, look at First Peter chapter 15. First Peter, not chapter 15. There ain't no 15. How about 115? No, that ain't it either. I wrote it down wrong. I'm looking. Just give me a moment. Well, here's what it says. Y'all have to find it. Peter talks about I'm, I die daily. I die daily. Uh, Exodus chapter 29 tells us that there were two bulls and two lambs, one in the morning and one at the night that were offered up and given. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, he says I, I've got to let this inward man be renewed daily. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, he says, I got to mortify, I got to kill my members. Why is the altar so important? Now, I had other ways I was going to say this, but brother Jaco said it perfectly. So how about I just use his own words? This is what he said today. Sin loves to come back home. Our past is always wanting to come back. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, he, he, he talks about a, a, a strong man that, uh, you know, that had a palace and had everything settled and, and, and was, was getting it all ready. But in, in doing so, he left and that palace was empty. This is Luke chapter 11 and verse uh, uh, 21. And he says that you know when when he when he when when that spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, finding none. He said, "I will return to the house from which I came." And when he comes, he finds the house that was it was swept and put in order. And he comes and he brings seven more spirits, even eviler than itself, and they entered and dwelled there. And you can tie those into the other gospel accounts. And he talks about a strong man that's being bound and. It's amazing how it is, how simple and how easy our sin wants to come back. How much our past doesn't like being in the past. Our past would prefer to be in our present. Why is it so important for an altar? It's because Brother Jaco told us this morning, sin is always welcome at the altar. If ever there's a place you could bring your sin... The altar is the place it ought to be. There's something about coming into the presence of God. That if you really want to be where God can touch you, worship is important. The, 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 the word of God is important. The incense is important. But you've got to start at the altar. Are you willing in your prayer? Now they did it twice a day it seems. In the morning and in the night. Are you willing when you pray to stop at that altar and lay yourself down on it and say, God, before I get in your presence, there's some things I got I to gotta get rid of. Now here's what we like. We like to bypass the altar. And we like to go here to the, to the golden laver, the bronze laver, I mean. Because that's kind of fun. It's a, it's a cleansing. It's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual bath. 
We don't like coming to church with our guilt, but we sure do like it when God removes our guilt. And so we want to jump to the, to the place where God just kind of washes our sin away. Somebody made this statement, said, I want to be under the spout where the Holy Ghost pours out. And that's how a lot of people are. I'm going to come to church and I'm going to just stand there and God's going to pour out something and he's going to cleanse me up. I've been a, a, a wretch all week. I've been a horrible sinner all week and I've been a hypocrite all week. But I'm going to get to church. God's just going to kind of magically take away all of that and I'll be able to walk into him, lift up holy hands. And they, but they, they, they want the cleansing, but they don't want the altar. But you can't get the cleansing unless you put yourself on the altar. You can't, if we take it in a salvation sense, you cannot have a, a water baptism that's effective unless you first repented. That's why if I baptized you, I've made sure to ask you, have you really repented? Because if you haven't repented, all you're doing is getting wet. Because if you haven't stopped at the altar... That cleansing water has no effect. But when you've stopped at the altar, <laughs> what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So easy for us to, to, to be at the altar when we were that, that wretch of society and, and we were mired in sin and its trespasses and we were drunks and we were fornicators and we were liars and we were adulterers and we were all those bad things and we didn't love God and all of a sudden we come to church and we feel the presence of God and it's easy to repent like that but I ask you this question you that are saved you that have walked in his presence you that's been in church for a long time you that celebrate your Holy Ghost anniversary every year and you know how to sing the songs and clap your hands my question to you is simple when is the last time you repented I know that the goal of all Christians is to live to where we have defeated sin. And that is a, a level that I'm getting to. I sure hope that the longer you live for God, the less sin you do. I'd like to think that's how it works. But I don't think there's a person in here that can say, I've conquered sin. I'm amazed. If you'll, I've talked to some, some great elder men of God. Not even preachers, but just elder, elderly men of God. And I'm amazed at how much they still battle as a man in their 80s and 90s. It's the same things I battled when I'm 16, 17, 18, 20, 30, 40. God doesn't turn it off. God doesn't change your mind. You're still going to walk through a sin-filled world and it's going to reach out and try to grab you with everything that there is. You're still going to walk through a dirty, horrid world and unfortunately, until we get to heaven, you're not going to walk with purity always and it's going to drag on you, which is why you got to start your prayer by coming to an altar and saying, God, I have sinned and I've come short of the glory of God. Too many times, pride jumps in. We don't want to admit we've sinned because somehow we think that if you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost and you've sinned, it, it, it's just, you know, a curse. And, and what are you going to do with that? And I messed up and I failed and, and, I, and I'm, I might as well just give it up. But that's not how it is. You, you, you say, Lord, I know I've been saved. I know I've been washing the blood. I know I've been filled with the Holy Ghost. But I still got to come daily to this altar. And say, Lord, cleanse me. I've sinned. 
I've failed. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't care how many times I've come to church and lifted up my hands. I don't care how many times I've shouted. I don't care how many times I've, I've given you praise. I don't care how many times I have been just overwhelmed by your presence. This is a new time, and right now, I'm asking you, as I lay myself on the fire of your spirit, cleanse me, wash me, purge me, so that I can walk from here to a cleansing labor. Perhaps this might be the reason that you, your, your, your prayers haven't been very effective lately. Because you haven't been willing to stop at the altar. Now, we're, we're, we're going to get to worship, and we're going to get to the presence of God, and we're going we're gonna to shout and have a good time. But that priest couldn't walk behind that veil until he had stopped at that altar. And today, the same thing is, is true. Says Julie, come help us sing this song. There, there's a, the Bible says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I've said it so many times. Living sacrifice, a living, burning one. I've laid myself on the altar. I've let the fire of the Holy Ghost begin to move me and begin to, 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 to change me, to mold me, to make me. God, I, I need you to, I get stubborn. I get hard-headed. Sometimes I get arrogant. Sometimes I get angry. And Lord, I can't go any further in my prayer until I lay it right here. And so I'm going to sing this old song. They're going to help me. If you know it, I want you to sing it with me. But I think it, when you begin to look at the words that are in it, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. The, uh, the writer of this song Elisha Hoffman I think he wrote it according to what I've, I've been able to find he wrote it in 1900 but he had an incredible way with words he says this he says you've longed for sweet peace you've longed for your faith to increase and you've earnestly and fervently prayed anybody been there? you want peace? you want rest? you want your faith to increase? you've earnestly you have prayed hard but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest if you yield him your body and your soul. As we sing this, I want you just to I want you to do what the song says. I want you to lay your all on the altar. Whether you come to the front, whether you kneel down at your chair, whether you just kind of lean over and put your forehead on the chair in front of you, I don't care how you do it. But I believe we ought to practice what we're preaching. And we ought to put our all on the altar. You have longed for sweet peace and for faith.